Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a new program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community. Today, we'll be launching a new monthly segment from publisher Bill Lavender called The Writer's Retreat. I hope you enjoy. This is Bill Lavender, publisher at Lavender, Inc. and Dialogos Books here in New Orleans, and this is The Writer's Retreat. I'm here today with Ralph Adamo, whose book, Ever?, recently came out from Lavender, Inc. Uh, we're going to both be reading poems and reminiscing a little bit today. Hi, Ralph. Hey, Bill. How are you? <laughs> okay. Thanks for coming down. Oh, thank you. Um, so your book is called Ever. Um, talk about it a little bit, the genesis of it. or well, You may uh, recall it, was, of it. it once had a, a much longer title, and you said, nobody will ever remember that title. And That's I said, well, how about, let's call it Ever. And you can, said, can you remember it now? No, I can't. <laughs> See? <laughs> Must not have been that good a title. <laughs> the genesis of it. I, I had been uh, starting really at the beginning of this century. I had I had started writing kind of new kind of poetry for me, but not really paying much attention to it because I had just had children and they were little and growing. And uh, around 2012 or 13, I started to notice that there were poems there and I should try to put them together and make something out of them. And so I put a book together and you kindly published it. So that's where that comes from. And um, Which I was happy to do. We've yeah. known each other a long time few years. Yeah, a few years. Before Facebook. Yeah. Uh, okay. In the early 70s, we were in school together at yeah. University of Arkansas. Yeah. So um, uh, are you going to read from well, Ever first? I'm going to actually, I'm going to back up and read a, a short poem from uh, before that in 2002, uh, John Travis's Press Portals Press published uh, kind of selected of mine and there's a poem in there, it's new and selected. This is a poem that hadn't been published anywhere, but I wrote it in 1996, and it was, uh, I hadn't, I don't tend to write directly political poems, but usually there is some political element, I think, in most everything I do write. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this one is sort of, I was watching the, uh, I don't know why, but I was watching the Republican convention, and Gerald Ford got up and made a speech, and and I remembered when he became president in the 1970s, and this is the poem that I wrote. It's called, By His Appearance in San Diego, a former president recalls the bringing together of father and son. Seeing that nearly blank square of a face from which issue those flat, subcommon words, I am reminded of the time, I'm sorry, I am reminded of the flare of optimism this flotsam hack once ignited in the smoke-filled and divided American heart of my father, so bright, if briefly, I got a call all the way to the little room in Arkansas where I sat, stoned, returning to the broadcast charades of the powerful, my own unamplified blankness. Was the word soul used, the phrase dark night of, by this man whose very head appears to be a helmet? Who can remember? But this I know. My father called out of the wide blue of the road to cheer the shrill, broken note of Nixon's passing to ask me if I thought it would be better now, be okay, didn't I feel dissonance lifting, disgust taking a break, at least a hint of a blue sky, a warning. I held my breath, but maybe only to attenuate the tope and shook my head. We can't give up our pessimism now, I said, and we did not. 
Um, and uh, should I read another one from Ever? Or yeah, uh, yeah. Do, do you, whatever, whatever you do want. You wanna, yeah. Okay. So you're switching switch to Ever now. Switching to Ever. Yeah. And uh, again, most of these poems are not political, but they kind of started that way. The first things I, I began writing in the early 2000s uh, were kind of in response to what was clearly the drumbeat of war that was being brought to, uh, brought out by the mm-hmm. the next the I'm sorry the Bush administration and my fear and horror at what was coming and uh, I was teaching at LSU at the time and I remember trying to explain to the students that they should pay attention to this because they might be the very people that would be taken yeah. anyway so I wrote a, a poem in several parts called solecism and this is part number eight and it, it occurs um, before the war has started and during the time that my wife Kay is pregnant with Lily and so it's sort of about her and about the war We prefer to make war in winter, and time is passing, and such time will bring my daughter first, then war, or war first, and then my daughter. But either way, my daughter is born on a tide of war she surely will take 12 years or more to hear of in any clear way, and then more to comprehend. For we, she will know, are about killing, as even our dreams assure us from the night, the guilt of the serial, from the night before, the guilt of the serial killer in every heart, no matter how mild, the stationary airplane about to become plosive, touching the spires of the cathedral school, and all fall down. The moderns among us have an easy shrug for every moment that has gone before. I have no such shrug in me and can hardly bear to pretend any more that I do. Everything weighs its tonnage quite accurately, and the heart strains to sing its customary work song some days when the tide pulls in more than one direction and too many poets are pointing the moon to the child and the child to the moon for one earth to lie cozy again for a day, a night, a day again, and again a night. My daughter will be born in a spin of nightmare on a rock where the green grows perversely. She will be herself held to a cold moon and talked to earnestly far into the night. She will hold if I am to continue this marvelous streak of luck, my finger nearly long enough for me to let, and do I say go? And do I mean I will not keep her from the horror we have hidden from this long? And in this marvelous life, will she wonder how could we have these things we do every day, this stuff we are keeping? Wow. Yeah, I remember um, first meeting you in uh, in the early '70s, and how you were you were an extremely uh, political poet at that time. Was I? One of the things I admired about you. Really? Yeah. Okay, I uh, don't really remember that. I remember being out of it mostly. <laughs> but... No, nah, you were you were into it, <laughs> and uh, yeah, this one is uh, that's that's beautiful the way the. Um, the way you kind of bring the politics home to the the level of uh, of the family and talking about your daughter and and uh, well, this, the this, future that we're bringing on right ourselves. this fear of what we're passing along to our children and exactly. it's it's there as much as ever I mean yeah you know, I was right it uh-huh. did take twelve years and yeah the uh, war is still going on right yeah, yeah. 
Okay, what else we got? Me? You're not going to read? All right. Uh, I'm going to read in a minute. All right. Okay. Well, I tell you, I, I was uh, a wonderful editor, publisher, poet, Philip Cullen, uh, asked me for a poem for an anthology that he's uh, editing uh, of moon poems. And uh, actually, I thought of sending him that one, but he, he he wanted poems that had never been published before. And I kept telling him I didn't have one. And he kept saying, well, write one. And so I did, finally. And this is it. It's called uh, There You Are. And there's a reference toward the end, really sort of at the end, becomes about our late friend, the poet Frank Stanford, another figure from Fayetteville from the old days. I refer to him as, uh, well, you'll see, it's... it's uh, I refer to him in the last stanza. Okay. But basically, this is me in the moon. Kind of, there you are. Sometimes I try to read the moon like a book, as if it were an old tree full of stories stuck in the asphalt night. I laugh along with the moon at the names we give it, the measures we take from its stoic, punctual self, the idea that an idea born on earth could be of the slightest moment to this big rock caught in the net of our girth. For years, I tried to see the moon through tree limbs, redbud, sycamore, oak, of course, pine, so many, all to catch a glimpse of her complicity. I was not convinced the moon wasn't hearing at all, the songs chiefly wafting away from the mouth of pain or joy, mustn't deny it, toward trembling ears, among them hers, the sly moon, the uninvited one, clothed in cold light, her pitted face half guarded by a silver scarf. The moon has taken nothing away, nothing from anyone. Let others make of the moon what they will, legend or warning, arbiter of the wave and the madness beneath. The moon's indifference is the key. The rest of us howl and dance. Here's a question. Is the moon sending secret messages to select dead ones? There in the moist earth, fragments of themselves, are they receiving orders that read as music? If the phases of that old woman, that cold stone, that pocked mirror, that hanging basket of shadows are connoting anything, I do not believe it is the unpardonable mystery you wish to unbury, nor a chart detailing the birth of the fastest horses, and not even a crooked glass corner down the street from where you are going to die. Let's call the phases she wheezes through by the names of famous clowns or discontinued brands of smoke, that much we can account for, trying to sleep. On his way off the planet, my friend said, keep your eye on the moon, your poetry. He was not an ancient poet of ancient China, but a river seer, a physician of the line between word and speech, between sound and song, between sadness and death, steeled connoisseur of the ineffable, dressed as a young man in a hurry. My friend knew the moon as an equal. His words made the moon pause and cast a glance in my trembling directions. Oh, there you are, said the clowning moon, said the somber stone, said the brightness so softly enfolding the time of my life on earth. Wow. I don't know. That's pretty amazing. First time I've read it. <laughs> oh, it was, uh, it was gorgeous. Yeah. Frank Stanford, obviously, who you're talking about there at the end. Yeah. Another uh, mutual friend of ours from Arkansas. Yeah. You know, I think I am going to break in and read a poem <laughs> okay. now because uh, uh, 
Philip also asked me for a moon poem. And, right. Um, so I wrote one that's very different. And um, as I tend to write these days, uh, very, very short. Uh, so it'll only take a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have some short ones too, honestly. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I know you do. <laughs> um, I have some long ones too. Yeah, I, I know. I a, yeah. Memory wing, for instance. Yeah, right. right. Okay. Um, but he, so this way, he asked me for, they asked me for that. Uh, a moon poem and I didn't have anything but then I was watching the eclipse oh, yeah. pictures and um, so this little uh, huh. haiku like thing arose it's called path of totality huh. corona like fur around the hole and what you don't believe in starts to howl is that a haiku? No. Oh, uh, it's actually two little stanzas. It's a little too long, but it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Double haiku. Mm-hmm. So that'll be something to look forward to. But his negative capabilities putting out there. They are, right? and I believe he said it was uh, maybe all all the way to print or or to the printer oh, really? anyway. Yeah. Well, so that's it's fast. coming soon. Yeah. yeah. Well, they've been working on it a while. We were late. Yeah. We were late to the party. Oh, okay. But, uh, well, that's good. Maybe I'll, I'll um, since like the old days in Arkansas have come up, and also the, the politics, I think I'm going to read this little section that I had um, set aside in case it came up um, from, from my verse memoir, uh, Memory Wing, which was published by Trembling Pillow, Yes, yeah, 2011. Wow. Uh, it was a while ago. Yeah. And anyway, so it's a, this is a long verse <laughs> memoir, as you know. It's uh, 200 and, 216 pages of solid quatrains. Well, let me uh, point out that it is, uh, what I've said to a lot of people about it is it's very readable. It's the kind of poem that you, you know, you, you look at a long poem like that and you might despair, but in fact, this one uh, invites you in and sort of gives you a, a tour. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I wanted it to be, I mean, it's based on speech, Yeah, you know, and so I wanted it to be just kind of like us talking right here. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm going <clears> to, <throat> there's no way to, um, the worst thing about it is that it's pretty much one long sentence. <laughs> so uh, it's very hard to kind of break into it. But I, I don't want to read this part about, um, uh, a couple of things, and, and it's in this part of the memoir, I'm back in Fayetteville in, uh, I believe it's 1969 when I talk about this demonstration. Mm-hmm. And I'm also talking about the poet crowd a little bit. I, anyway, this little short piece. Um, so the poets were an interesting crowd. There was, like I was telling you, Brazier and then Gary Legey, what clear and brilliant minds those two had that came seemingly to naught. And there was Frank Stanford and Carolyn, later to be C.D. Wright, and Big Nay, whom we called Big Net, and Crazy John Stoss, whom I saw get up on stage with R.D. Rucker at a rally against the war, where we hippies were chanting, peace now, peace now, and R.D. got up and took the mic and said, look, 
I'm going to tell you how you find peace. You're going to find peace by picking up the gun. You ain't going to find no peace till you learn how to shoot and defend yourself from the man. And Stoss got up, lumbering 300-pound white guy, and said, it's time we put our guts on the line. we got to stay here until we're arrested. No backing down. Let's tell them. And lots of people raised their fists, though there were also lots who just kind of looked around, and 30 minutes later it all dispersed. And then there was Leroy Bogus. I'd gone to high school with him, and he had enlisted right out of high school and came back almost immediately in a wheelchair, let his hair grow, carried a sign that said, Thank you, Richard Nixon. And we were in a demonstration on the hill above the stadium, and we had a group of crosses set out that spelled Me Lie, and Nixon's helicopter passed right over, and the crowd growled like an animal. I think that was 1969, yeah. that demonstration. It was right after Me Lie. Yeah. It was also uh, one of the most famous uh, football games. It was uh, the hmm. Arkansas-Texas game was for the national championship that year. Wow. That's why Nixon was there. Uh, it wasn't there because of the war or anything like that. <laughs> it was much like so, much like today when there's all this stuff going on and what's going dominating the political football. conversation is football. Yeah. So Nixon was actually in Fayetteville. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he huh. came. It, the only time I know of that he ever came was for that game, hmm. and they he came in in one of those giant helicopters, and uh, wow, we were up there on the hill, and yeah. it seemed like it passed within about ten feet of sure, us. Yeah. It was. Uh, and he dropped down in the practice field beside the stadium and uh, and and came out, yeah. Triumphant Nixon before Watergate. Uh, yeah, he was still, um, I mean, it was right after Me Lai, but uh, his popularity was, uh, was surging. He actually yeah. got, I remember reading this, that in pardoning Lieutenant Callie, the officer who had, right. you know, kind of instigated the massacre. Right. Uh, he had an 80% approval rating Damn. in the country uh, when he did that. So he was, uh, it was riding high then. So things, uh, yeah, things, well, I was going to say things don't change. Of course they do change. Yeah. But then they, they seem very familiar sometimes. Boys, yeah, they do. <laughs> um, well, it's, that you, I think you did an amazing thing with this book, really. And I, you know, I remember when when it when I first encountered it and, and read it, and uh, I wasn't the only one. I decided let's. I need to do that too. I need to yeah. <laughs> commit my life to a verse poem. I got exactly two poems done, and then I had to stop because it wasn't. They were, I think, good. And I thank you for you know the in, inspiration, but. It wasn't, it wasn't, I guess it just wasn't mine to do, you know. But, uh, well, what I found in writing a long poem like this, you can't worry too much about it being good. <laughs> you just have to keep going. Forge ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, I agree. I did, I revised a bit. I took out about 60 pages. Damn. Uh, believe it or not. Yeah. I hope you kept them somewhere. Just... Uh, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Judd? Yeah, go ahead. You, okay, I, I've read more than you. I, th this one, I <clears throat> appreciate the the chance to sort of 
practice these poems. These are, these are really new. I don't usually get a chance to read really new poems because I don't know why, because I'm not asked to read that often maybe. But anyway, I, I, I wrote this one. Uh, I have a dog, thanks to, thanks to my family, which, you know, arranged for and got a dog who turned out to be against everybody's expectations, my dog, and, uh, <laughs> and then that he follows me and sort of sleeps with me and and hangs on oh, cool. my every word. Yeah, he's, anyway, uh, so, and I got to thinking, you know, he's four now, and I'm uh, past four, and uh, I, you know, it's, it's a, uh, <clears throat> I do plan to live quite a bit longer, but who knows, you know. Anyway, and so I got to thinking about the fact that I, I may not get to write his elegy because I, I might not be here. And so uh, it's called Pre-Writing Isaac's Elegy. It's, uh, and Isaac is our dog. Um, it's probably too sentimental, but let me, let me go ahead and read it anyway because, you know. Although it's a crapshoot which one of us goes first, it is a fact that both of us will go. If me... Your only elegy might be sometimes a mystified, low-growl dog for question. If you, well, I know I'll be too bummed to make a good bowl of words drop from my suddenly quiet mouth. You might get one, an elegy, eventually, composed of meaty memories, old bones, the scent of cat to cause your tongue to drool. Sure, I'd put all that in for you. But first, see, I'm a wreck, sleepless, lonely, ready for a stroll we can't take. Even now, you're barely middle-aged, and I feel a swell in the back of my throat. No one lives forever, though some try, the rope-a-dope with death always ending in the knockout. But dogs are different. Like Rilke says, the shadow spares them. You walk enmeshed in scent, your worries, not nothing, but not abstract. Sleep heals what ails, and food, and staying near. This closeness, not mere intermission, after all. Good dog, doodle, Isaac, friend. <laughs> That's great. You've um, always been one to write um, lovely romantic poems about your pets. Um, there was, um, I'm forgetting the cat's name now. Boo, Boo Radley. Boo yeah. Radley. That, that's yeah, really yeah. the only other one, I think, but I, I do like it. Yeah, that was a, you know, a pretty pretty serious <laughs> elegy to Boo there. Yeah. yeah. You don't have that with you, do you? I do, but I've been reading a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why don't you read us? Uh, have you, you, you've always had a dog. Have you written any doggy I haven't always poems? had a dog. I always no? had dogs when I was a kid. And then um, just recently, well, it's been 15 years now. Yeah. Uh, we got Rennie, and um, he's 15 years old and still still going strong. Looks like a pup. Yeah, yeah he's a great dog. Yeah. yeah. He has to go get acupuncture now. And uh, <laughs> uh, we have to cook his food because he's on a specific diet to maintain a healthy <laughs> chi. And... Um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen when uh, when he goes on. Yeah. Um, I I am going to read some more. I'll I'll tell you what I'll do. I mean, since you've been brave enough to read stuff that's brand new, I'm also going to read something that's brand new. Good. I hadn't even thought about reading this before this moment. But this is a series of um, the kind of 
thing that I'm writing now, which is very aphoristic, very short, and um, it has it, the stanzas kind of have nothing to do with each other. It's yeah. very paratactic in that way, yeah. and um, so it's almost like a sequence. Um, but this one is called Writer's Retreat, and it's actually why I, how I named this radio series. Um, I was searching for a name for it, and I had just named this thing. So I said, okay, Writer's Retreat. I like the double meaning. And um, uh, I say, so I'll read a little bit from that. It starts out, roll the dice, speak. In the beginning was, and was with God, and was God. Alive in the language. I should explain that those silences are ellipses in the poems. As all speech is apostrophe, so I address you, though you were only a structure, a shape imagined. That star sent out the light we see tonight a million years before humans existed and after. Ceiling fan turning, cross and gyre in the dull evening light. A simple single thread that turns back on itself again and again and becomes a knot. We write to make the absent present, and vice versa. To turn over a new leaf, to become a leaf trembling in the wind. A motor purring quietly outside, then pulling away, distant voices, Someone walks on the drumhead of the wooden floor next door. I can say I, but if you'd rather, I can disappear. It's an aesthetic decision. The risk isn't discovering you have nothing to say, but that you aren't there to say it. The old wooden fence weathered, green algae starting up from the bottom. When a gust hits, the pecan tree nuts hit the tin roof hard. I lie down stoned and feel this as touch, as if I went all the way. I'll stop here. Parataxis, not a technique, but the representation itself. Well, this has been uh, great fun. And uh, we're out of time, yeah. but um, uh, you've been listening to myself, Bill Lavender, and Ralph Adamo reading some poetry, Ralph's book ever, uh, and uh, some new work from both of us. You can find Ralph's book and archives of this recording and other recordings at lavenderinc.org. I'm Bill Lavender, and this has been The Writer's Retreat a monthly segment of on figure of speech wrbh new orleans 
That was the first edition of the Writer's Retreat, a segment of WRBH's new community poetry and writing program, Figure of Speech. Tune in Saturdays at 3 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.